Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be examining the question, what can we learn from bizarre phenomena? With me is Dr. Bernardo Castrup, a computer scientist and philosopher. He is the author of Meaning in Absurdity, What Bizarre Phenomena Can Tell Us About the Nature of Reality. His other books include Rationalist Spirituality, an exploration of the meaning of life and existence informed by logic and science. Dreamed-up reality, diving into the mind to uncover the astonishing hidden tale of nature. Why materialism is baloney, how true skeptics know there is no death, and fathom answers to life, the universe, and everything. Brief Peaks Beyond, critical essays on metaphysics, neuroscience, free will, skepticism, and culture. More than allegory on religious myth, truth and belief, and the idea of the world, a multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. Dr. Kastrup is in the Netherlands, so this is an internet interview, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bernardo. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jeff. It's great to be here again. It's always fun talking to you. Thank you, and uh, likewise. And uh, In your book, Meaning and Absurdity, you really dig into some of the most bizarre examples that you can find, both from dreams and, interestingly, from uh, uh, religious experiences and from uh, UFO sightings. Uh, there are some uh, extremely bizarre reports from very credible witnesses. And uh, most of the time when these things happen, I think people have a tendency to say, well, something has to be wrong. That simply can't be true. It's too strange to even uh, go any further in my thinking process. Yeah, and I think what is what is most interesting, at least what was most interesting to me when I was looking into these things, is that uh, although... The, the type of experience varies so much, like uh, dreams and UFO experiences and psychedelic trances and whatnot. Um, there are recurring themes, uh, uh, recurring themes that, that, that are symbolic, uh, 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 but are consistent across types of experience. And that for me was was an interesting thing, something that uh, stimulated me to, to, to look further into this, to see if there is um, any root of truth uh, or any possibility of uh, deriving an insight from these otherwise uh, weird and, on the face of it, dismissible experiences. Mm -hmm. One uh, that you wrote about that really stuck in my mind is the epitome of absurdity is uh, a very credible witness who experienced something like a flying saucer landing in his uh, backyard and, and the occupants asked him apparently through sign language to get him a jug of water and when he arrived with the water for them he saw they were making food of some sort like pancakes inside 
side of their vehicle, and uh, when they noticed his interest, they gave him three pancakes that he then turned over to the U.S. government for analysis. <laughs> yeah, that's a case reported by Jacques Vallée in uh, one of his earlier books from the 70s. Uh, I forgot which one it was. Um, and interestingly, uh, um, there was no salt in the pancakes, according to analysis, although they were otherwise perfectly ordinary pancakes. And Valet makes this link with uh, uh, the fairy lore, uh, the stories of fairies. Uh, and apparently the fairies don't use salt. They don't eat uh, salt. So how this witness so many years ago, Joe Simonton was his name, mm-hmm. um, how he would... Uh, come up with this story with this peculiar detail that there was also no salt uh, in them pancakes uh, it's it, it's quite interesting i mean uh, of course i'm not saying in the book and i'm not saying to you that these stories are literally true uh, the very point of what i'm saying is that there is more to truth than what is literally true mm-hmm. so the point is precisely that it isn't literally true that there is a level of truth to it that transcends uh, this direct, immediate level that we call literal truth. Um, but that there is any level of truth in it is quite intriguing because then one starts digging into the symbolic value, the metaphorical value of these stories, uh, which are not just idiosyncratic. They clearly, uh, this, this, this metaphorical value, this metaphorical truth does not arise merely in the minds of a single human being. It's not a personal story. There is a collective stream underlying this that sort of unifies Joe Simonton's UFO sightings and fairy lore, for instance, or, or the dreams of Jung's patients and, and so on and so forth. And that's what I thought was, was quite interesting to look into. You... Uh, seem to be approaching these phenomena from the point of view of a logician. You're suggesting that logic, even though they seem so terribly illogical, we can apply logic to them. Yes. Uh, when we contemplate different narratives about the nature of reality, about what is true and what is not true, we tend to sort of assume, even if we are not cognizant of it, we tend to assume that the bottom layer of what's real or not real is physics. It's the laws of nature, the laws of physics. If, if, if a phenomenon complies with the laws of nature, then it, it has a chance of being true. The report has a chance of being true. But if it violates physics, then it cannot a priori uh, uh, be true. And I think there is and an even deeper uh, layer, uh, an even deeper layer uh, in, in, in this, in our assessment of reality, and that's logic itself, because physics and mathematics, they are both built upon a set of logical axioms, things that we consider truth true, uh, because they are, or so we think, self-evidently true. They do not require proof, they do not require substantiation, they do not require explanation, uh, uh, they are simply true. Like if A equals B and B equals C, then it's self-evidently true that A equals C. Or it's self-evidently true that a, a proposition is either false or true. It cannot be both true and false, and it cannot be neither it has to be one and only one of the two. So I just mentioned uh, 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 um, as examples two of the axioms of Aristotelian logic, uh, the second one being the law of excluded middle. Uh, 
any proposition is either true or false, not both and not neither. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem, and, and we build the castle of our physics uh, on top of these logical axioms. Even mathematics is built on top of these logical axioms. And uh, we don't question them. Um, the problem is that they are, there's a big discussion in philosophy whether these logical axioms are empirical or not, uh, but they are largely arbitrary. Um, yeah, there is a case to be made that, uh, for all we know, the world as it is in itself could be essentially absurd, because there is no a priori reason why uh, the intuitive logical axioms of a primate's mind uh, uh, should encompass all the degrees of freedom of nature. The way we think uh, has evolved through pressures of natural selection and evolution we needed to survive in a chaotic and threatening ecosystem. Uh, and our logic, also as, as the rest of our psyche, uh, reflects uh, those pressures. It has not evolved to capture uh, uh, the general truths of nature, uh, right? So at the bottom of what we consider essentially real is a set of arguably arbitrary axioms, the axioms of logic, and we build a whole castle on top of that. So what the, the question I looked into in the book was, could it be that reality has many more degrees of freedom than, than, than are allowed by our normal Aristotelian logic? Could it be that nature obeys a logic that has less or different axioms? Or maybe that it doesn't obey logic at all, that it's essentially uh, chaotic and arbitrary, and it is we, through the apparatus of our cognition, that impose order on it, to the point that we don't even discern how it is originally, we only see the order that we uh, impose on it at a non-metacognitive level. Hmm. Um, and that's what started me off looking into logic, uh, alternative formulations of logic like intuitionistic logic and and what would be the consequences if nature for instance operated according to intuitionistic logic and not according to aristotelian logic and so on and and then matching all that to absurd experiences well you are a computer scientist by uh, your background and i i am not but what i uh, have heard is is that there's a whole branch of software programming based on something called fuzzy logic which is different than aristotelian logic that's true but that's not the most interesting alternative uh, um i for me as you saw in the book um uh, the most interesting alternative to log- what is a different logic? A different logic is a logic that has a different set of axioms. Mm-hmm. And axioms are things that things that you just take for granted. You don't have to justify them. You don't have to prove them. It's a choice, a more or less arbitrary choice. We are guided only by intuition when we choose those. And an alternative logic would have a different set of axioms. And there is this logic called intuitionistic logic, which, uh, which is a constructivist kind of logic, in which uh, we choose less axioms. We discard, for instance, the law of excluded middle. We don't say that uh, just because something cannot be false, that it then must be true. No, you don't know that. You only know that something is true if it can be constructed by means of an example. Mm. Uh, 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 it's a less abstract logic. It's a more concrete logic. What is true is what can be constructed, Mm -hmm. not what can be demonstrated through abstract means. Um, But the consequence of choosing this one less axiom is that nature suddenly gains many more degrees of freedom. Uh, There can be multiple 
mutually contradictory truths playing at the same time. Something can be A, but it can also be B concurrently. Something can be symbolic and metaphorical, but it can also be really, really true at the same time. Uh, um, and, and that's what I thought was fascinating, because uh, what makes us consider many of these so-called absurd experiences uh, uh, dismissible is precisely this violation of the law of excluded middle. Uh, if it is this, then it cannot be that. So the experience is internally inconsistent, and therefore we can dismiss it uh, on the face of it because it's just internally contradictory. Well, if, if intuitionistic logic is what applies to the world at large beyond what we can uh, uh, perceive through the machinery of our cognition, beyond the order that we impose on it, if beyond all that, nature is intuitionistic in the way it operates, constructivist in a certain way, uh, then, hey, then absurd experiences now have a place. Uh, uh, they, they cannot be outright dismissed. It doesn't still mean that they are true at any level, uh, uh, but it opens the door to the possibility of their being true at some level be it symbolic, metaphoric, literal, whatever, there is this possibility mm -hmm. now. Now, so intuitionist logic, I understand, was developed in the field of mathematics uh, in, in particular as a way of uh, getting... In fact, it was developed in your country, in, in the Netherlands. The first the first uh, person who worked on it uh, was, was in the Netherlands, yes. And philosophers then sort of run with it uh, with it and, uh, and and they extrapolated the validity of the basic rationale behind the intuitionistic logic uh, uh, beyond uh, its original field uh, it has been extrapolated to ontology which is the study of what can be true in general the nature of reality and and to me that was the most fascinating the most fascinating question is when i perceive and contemplate the world am i seeing its true richness in terms of its degrees of freedom, or am I seeing a filtered version of it with an order in it that has been imposed between quotes unconsciously by me as its observer because of the very nature of my cognitive apparatus as it evolved through natural selection. I mean, there's enough evidence today to say that uh, we didn't evolve to perceive truth. We've evolved to, to survive. And it, it, there's many good reasons to think that uh, perceiving untruth is very, very conducive to survival. Uh, uh, we, th there is no reason for us to perceive things as they actually are. Um, so who are we to say that certain experiences are a priori impossible? We are operating behind a filter. Um, we don't really know what the true degrees of freedom of nature are. Well, one of the philosophical concepts that you seem to be challenging in your work is the very notion of realism itself. Yes, realism, and that comes coupled with the so-called uh, correspondence theory of truth. Uh, it's the idea that uh, we can make statements about nature, uh, but nature has its own independent states. Uh, nature is whatever it is, regardless of what we say or th about it or think of it. Nature simply is. So there are facts out there. 
that are what they are, regardless of our opinion, our perception, our knowledge of them. And therefore, if I make a statement about nature, that statement is true if it corresponds with an objective fact of the world out there. And if it does not have this correspondence, if there is no objective fact in the world out there uh, that the statement corresponds to accurately, then the statement is false. That's the correspondence theory of truth. The problem is that uh, over the past, uh, say, three, four decades, um, quantum mechanics has been giving us uh, uh, strong hints, maybe indications, maybe even more than indications. I'm, I'm being cautious here. Uh, if, if this weren't counterintuitive, I think most people would say, well, quantum mechanics has proven that realism is false. But because this is so counterintuitive, ha- mm. I'm trying to be cautious. There are strong indications that there are no such definite objective facts out there independent of our uh, 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 perception of the world, of our observation of the world, uh, that the world doesn't have a definite state uh, for statements to correspond to or not. The world is a cloud of possibilities. Um, and if that's the case, then the correspondence theory of true is out the window. Then wh- whether something is true or not, uh, uh, does not depend on there being an objective fact out there because these facts are not there anyway to begin with. And then you could say, well, then every experience is true as such because there is nothing for them to correspond to anyway. Uh, so they are true as such. They are true as experiences. Um, and, but that would seem then to, to completely eliminate the difference between um, fantasy and hallucination and reality, right? What mm-hmm. I would propose, and I do propose in the book, is that you still have one extra uh, criterion that does not depend on realism, does not depend on this idea that nature has objective, definite states independent of observation, and that is consensus. Um, if I have an experience that I report to others, and others who were in the position of sharing that experience tell me, yes, your report is correct, we experienced the same thing, then it's then that experience is true at a consensual level. And there are experiences that are not consensual. Hallucinations, some psycho- some types of psychedelic trances, uh, uh, schizophrenic visions. Um, so they are still true as such, as experiences, but they don't fit into the consensus. So I think it's more productive to talk about truth as a, a, a concept that relies on consensus. What is true at the social level is the consensus of the society. What is true to me is my personal experience, and it does not require any consensus at all to carry value, meaning, and significance to me, because it's true to me as an experience that I've had, regardless of consensus, and so on and so forth. So we can still talk about truth and falsity, even if realism is not the case. But we also have to adjust the way we think about logic in order to accommodate and make sense of this, because Aristotelian logic, the way we use it, relies largely on this correspondence theory of truth. The law of the excluded middle that you talked about means that, uh, I mean, it's basic to all of experimental science, at least as I studied it in in uh, psychology and the social sciences. When you run an experiment, you formulate what's known as the null hypothesis, which is, in effect, the opposite of the hypothesis that you're really interested in. And if you can disprove the null hypothesis, that's taken as a confirmation of 
uh, your experimental um, theory. Yes, if the experiment cannot be false, if the hypothesis cannot be false, then it is perforce true, right? That's yeah. the law of excluded middle. Everything, every statement has to be either true or false. And that relies on the correspondence theory of truth. It's true if it corresponds to an objective fact out there. It is not true if there is no such fact for it to correspond to. Uh, if, if you lose realism, you lose the law of excluded middle, and now what do you do? What, justifica what justification do you have uh, um, to adopt the law of excluded middle? So, as you mentioned, this started in mathematics, and the idea was there, there was, well, if, if a, a mathematical statement uh, is true, if I can construct it by means of an example. If I say that uh, there is a prime number uh, there should be a prime number that complies with these and these properties, then the way to prove is to show me an example of one such prime number that complies with such properties. I cannot prove it by disproving its falsity or the null hypothesis. So if we translate that into philosophy, uh, we cannot prove or disprove things in the abstract. Things can only be shown to be true or not in the concrete through Examples through experiences uh, that are felt and, and experienced and reportable, uh, and and that's quite a revolution because uh, a lot of stuff today is is proven through disproving its opposite, uh, mm -hmm. right? Uh, disproving its potential falsity or disproving that it's true and therefore guaranteeing that it's false. Um, if now things can be true and false at the same at the same time. Uh, and the only way to make a decision is to construct them, to construct their reality. Now we are in a, in, in, in a conception of reality in which what is real is not just out there waiting to be discovered, uh, but to some extent what is real is what we construct to be real. Uh, in the machinery of our cognition, um, you are in in a, in a view of reality in which nature is is fairly acquiescent and and and, and malleable, uh, and it uh, it acquiesces to what you impose on it. It will acquiesce if you impose lots of restrictions on it, but it will also acquiesce uh, uh, if you construct uh, if you, if you allow your experience to arise and be constructed. In a, in a less constrained manner with uh, the application of less uh, logical axioms, so mm -hmm. to say. And I suspect that this is what is behind absurd experiences. Um, it's when people drop their filters. Uh, they, they, they drop their, for some reason, because of a chemical or because of loose belief systems uh, or naivete, innocence, uh, whatever, for whatever reason, they drop uh, their basic, the basic constraints of our society about what is allowed or not to be true. They open up, and, and nature responds uh, uh, in a way that an experience is constructed uh, that may not be literally true in the sense of you know, a certain consensus, um, but which is true in a symbolic way. Here is nature reacting to its observer uh, with an experience that uh, that denotes or at least connotes something of value, something that is true at some level. 
You uh, point out in your book that we really have two different ways of thinking about truth. One of them you've already described, which is consensus. Um, then uh, you define another kind of truth that we arrive at, and, uh, which you call sort of the, the stronger version of truth than consensus, uh, which I suppose is, is a logical proof. But at the same time, you point out that every logical proof, because it's based on a, necessarily based on an axiom, is also an act of faith. Ultimately, logic is a question of faith. Yes, because it starts from axioms that you just take to be self-evidently true, but you have no good reason to to think that. I mean, there's a big debate in philosophy about this. Some people say that logic is empirical, but then you get quantum mechanics, which throws logic sort of upside down. Um, and, and other people who just bite the bullet and say logic is, is, is just something that's hard-coded in our primate brains for us to believe that it should be like that. Um, nature seems to comply to our logic, because we build our scientific theories based on our logic, and guess what? Nature seems to behave according to that. But from this idealist perspective, this idea that nature is essentially mental, uh, that the, this mental universe around us acquiesces to the degrees of freedom that we impose on it, or the, or the res restrictions that we impose on it, it's not surprising. It's just reacting to, to the machinery of our cognition to the limitations we impose on it, what we allow ourselves to perceive and not perceive. Uh, so that's not an argument against uh, the case I'm making. Um, but I think the, mo the strongest uh, 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 argument to say that uh, my position does not entail relativism, the, no the notion that whatever you say, it's true for you, and it's equally true uh, whatever everybody else says. No, that's not what I'm putting forward. I'm not putting forward this notion that uh, whatever you say is true. Uh, no, I think there are ways for us to 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 choose as a society uh, what is true at a consensual level or not. There are the definitions of truth that do not rely on the principle of uh, the law of excluded middle or the correspondence theory of truth. One uh, we just talked about. The other one would be internal consistency. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you're building a a um, how to say uh, the logical structure of your worldview, uh, which has several elements, and these elements begin to undermine each other, um, then you're in trouble. Um, I mean, it, it, it could be okay, but in a sense, you're, you're undermining your own system. Um, but if you build it in a way that is internally consistent, that there is coherence, that the statements you make about reality cohere and support one another, then you, you, you erect a strong castle. You erect a strong scaffolding uh, onto which to project your experiences uh, of the world and construct uh, your experience of the world as an individual or as a society, as a civilization, as a species uh, even. Um, and I think this ultimately is uh, the strongest uh, principle, at least for the way we tend to think, for our basic logical intuitions, this is the strongest principle. It is the principle, for instance, that underlies the notion that if you multiply two negative numbers, you get a positive one, which seems absurd. You know, I have a debt, I multiply by another debt, and no, oh, I am out of debt. It would be nice uh, if things were like this. So 
Why is it that if you multiply two negative numbers, you get a positive one? Well, that's a coherence constraint. Uh, you can show through the laws of arithmetic that it must be like this if arithmetic is not to contradict itself from within, not to undermine itself. And this principle of coherence, I think, is pretty strong. And mm. that's what we, we are always doing, even though we are not cognizant of it. We are always applying this principle of coherence to our understanding of ourselves and the world. Mm -hmm. You also draw on the work of the yeah, logician Kurt Gödel uh, and his theorem and how he has shown that uh, it's impossible for a logical system to be both consistent and complete. Correct. Uh, that That is a that proof was made for formal systems. Yeah. Uh, and we have to be cautious about extrapolating that to, to everything, you know, to life, the universe, and everything. Um, but there is a strong intuition that uh, arises from that result that I think is, is legitimately applicable in general to our thinking about reality. And as you said, the idea there is that you cannot make every statement that's true about a system without contradicting yourself. You either do not make every statement that is true. In other words, you miss out on stuff that is really real uh, and you cannot say anything about it, or you make false statements. Uh, and, and, and that's peculiar because, you know, let's pretend for a moment that we could simply apply this to our understanding of the universe. This is a very complicated question, whether we can do this really or not. Is the universe a formal system? You know, it, it, this is not a settled question, but let's pretend that we could apply this to the universe. That would mean that we would either never know everything there is to know about the universe, or that would be wrong about certain things we think we know about the universe. And yeah, that sort of undermines uh, this this positivist, affirmative uh, view of the human capabilities that we've had since the early 20th century, that, you know, human nature, human beings are going to just, you know, find the answers to every question and solve every problem. Well, maybe we should be a little bit more modest. Coming back to quantum physics, you uh, suggest that uh, one way of interpreting things like quantum entanglement and uh, Bell's theorem and the EPR paradox is, is to suggest that realism breaks down. I understand another way to look at it is to say that uh, locality breaks down rather than realism, meaning that everything is interconnected and it it seems yes. uh, one way or another that um, what if everything is interconnected or if realism breaks down you're in a situation where the fundamental intuitive division that every person normally makes between what's inside their subjective experience and what's outside and their sensory perceptions of the world they seem like two different realities. People are sort of native dualists. Uh, but you're suggesting that really uh, the inside and the outside are all part of the, the same reality. And that's uh, how these bizarre events occur. It's something welling up from the depths of the psyche and then manifesting itself somehow in external reality. That I, I couldn't have put it better than, than, <laughs> than you just did. Uh, you, you put it Perfectly. Um, th there's a lot to comment on and to unpack uh, mm. on the introduction you made to, to, to this conclusion. Um, quantum entanglement, you know, does it discard realism? Does it refute realism or does it refute locality? Uh, it is still officially an open question. Um, 
I think it refutes realism. And the reason is, well, the most straightforward reason is that we have some, it's a technical thing. There are some so-called inequalities in quantum mechanics, uh, 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 Tony Leggett's inequalities. They were published in a paper, I think, in 2003 in the Journal of the Foundations of Physics. And it shows that uh, if you can prove that uh, uh, that quantum mechanics violates certain types of inequalities, certain statistical properties of, of the experiments. If we can show that statistically the experiments violate certain properties, like its inequalities, some of them, if that can be demonstrated, would specifically refute realism independent of locality. So you sort of disentangle the two from one another. You zoom in and you on realism and you say, okay, I can prove or disprove realism with, well, I can disprove realism with this. And people did the experiment. There were two papers, 2007 and 2010, uh, um, in which those exact realism-related inequalities, uh, 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 it, it was demonstrated uh, that uh, based on those inequalities that realism is either not true or we have to significantly change uh, our idea of the concept of objectivity. What we construe to be something objective, we would have to revise what we mean by it. In other words, the only way to save realism is to redefine what it means, which is a sort of, you know, it's a cheat. Yeah. You know, realism as we understand it, that the world has definite properties out there regardless of your observation, that that seems to be refuted more than once. Um some would say, well, yes, it's refuted for a large class of non-local theories. But there are some non-local theories that may still survive. And the most eminent is Bohm's uh, theory, the Bohm, uh, Bohm's pilot wave theory. And strictly speaking, that can still survive. Uh, we have not eliminated that. But that theory has a huge set of problems that, I mean, physicists could elaborate on, on it better than me, but there's a huge set of problems associated with that, especially when you're trying to push the theory towards quantum gravity. There, there are issues uh, with Bohm's theory. Um, so if that's the only surviving possibility for realism, I tend to think, well, you know, I, I don't think realism is tenable anymore. Uh, of course, it's a very difficult thing intuitively to choose between whether you get rid of realism, the world has definite states independent of your observation. Well, it's very intuitive that it should have. Either you discard that or you discard locality, that things influence one another only when they are more or less close to one another, that an event in this galaxy will not instantaneously influence an event in the Andromeda galaxy, right? It's very difficult to discard that as well, because it's so intuitive that to influence something, you have to come close to it, to being within the range of influence given the speed of light constraints. Uh, but we have to discard one or the other, and I think evidence shows that we should discard realism. The problem is, and that's the theme of the book again, if you discard realism, you are done with the correspondence theory of truth, and you have to revise your the, the ground of our view of reality, which is our very logical axioms. It's not only about revising the laws of physics anymore. It's about revising the deepest self-evident intuitions about we have regarding how to think about the laws of physics. It's much deeper. And I think we are, as a civilization, we are confronting a situation now where it's 
it, it's we are being forced to have to revise that very ground of our thinking, the very axioms of our logic, of our basic way of thinking. And this is very big news. It would seem to me that uh, the other possibility, the other alternative is equally true. Once we give up locality, that means that uh, if I wiggle my finger here, it's affecting events in the most distant reaches of the universe. Even my thoughts could be affecting distant galaxies. Uh, that also requires a complete revision of uh, our notions of logic. Strictly speaking, not necessarily. Okay. You do not need to revise your axioms of logic for that. But okay, let me elaborate. Now I have to elaborate a little bit more <laughs> on that. Um, um, okay, let, let's let's pretend that uh, there is no um, experimental reasons uh, to favor getting rid of realism as opposed to getting rid of locality. Let's suppose they are on equal footing uh, empirically, experimentally. Uh, from a careful analysis of quantum theory itself, uh, it has been shown that uh, quantum theory is essentially, uh, how do I put this? Uh, it has been shown that two observers can describe the same system in two different ways and both are right. And uh, what this shows is that according to quantum theory, the knowledge you have of the world is relative to you. Mm-hmm. It's relational. And, 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 and this understanding, people call it an interpretation. I think it's the wrong word. It is not an interpretation of quantum theory. This is an analysis and an understanding of the implications of quantum theory. It's not making any ontological interpretation about what it means to reality. It's just looking at the theory as it is and deriving its necessary implications. Carlo Rovelli uh, did this in, I believe, in 1994. Uh, paper was ultimately published in 1996, and it has become known now as relational quantum mechanics, or RQM. I don't think it's an interpretation, as I mentioned to you. It's just a derivation of the implications of quantum theory. And the implication is, as far as the physical world is concerned, in other words, physical quantities, mass, charge, momentum, geometric relationships, position, so forth. As far as these physical quantities are concerned, the physical world is relational. Uh, It is something to you. And it's something else to another observer. There is no overarching physical world that is the same for all of us. Quantum theory seems to refute uh, this because different observers can describe the same sequence of events in different ways. And they are all both true. Uh, An analogy is, is to talk about motion. Motion is relative to the observer. If I am at a train at a train station platform and a train is approaching, uh, that train has a motion relative to me. But if I am sitting inside the train, that train has no motion relative to me. It's static relative to me as a passenger sitting inside the train. But as somebody standing on the platform, there is motion. Right. So motion.